Section twenty nine of Essays on Art. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays on Art by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Translated by Samuel Gray Ward. Section twenty nine. The Pictures of Philostratus. Part six. Theseus. It is a fortunate circumstance, since not even the rhetorical description of this picture has come down to us, that we may still see it with our eyes, among the treasures of Portici, and the engraving from it is well known. The young hero stands before us, brown in colour, powerful yet slender, strong and active. He looks gigantic beside the now rescued companions in misfortune, who are figured as children, the wisdom of the artist, having thus rendered them subordinate to the main figure, not one of them could wield the club and face the monster who lies at the feet of the victor. The expression of gratitude, even from this decrepit old man, does not seem unbecoming, when he seizes the hand of his preserver to kiss it, clasps the knees of the hero, and smiles confidingly upon him. In the space above appears the half-revealed form of some god, to indicate that nothing heroic can be accomplished without the aid of higher powers. Here we cannot refrain from a remark which is of wide application. The true force and effect of poetry, as well as imitative art, consists in this, that they make a principal figure and represent what surrounds it, even the most worthy as subordinate to it. By this means, the eye is attracted to a centre whence the rays extend over the whole, and thus are ensured happiness and wisdom, truth and invention, and the composition of a true harmonious poem. History, on the other hand, requires a different treatment. There we expect accuracy. History may sooner be allowed to dim than to brighten the splendour of the conqueror. For this reason, it distributes light and shadow over all, brings to light the most unimportant cooperator, and meets to him his due share of the renown. But when, through a mistaken notion of truth, we demand a little accuracy of poetry, we destroy its existence, of which Philostratus himself, to whom we owe so much, affords a notable instance in his Book of Heroes, where he makes the demonic Protesilaus take Homer to task for his silence concerning the merits of Palamedes, and for having represented himself as the accomplice of the infamous Ulysses, who so treacherously thwarted the above-named noble heroes of war and peace. Here we see the transition from poetry to prose, which is effected by unbridling the imagination, which is allowed to wander at will, now the servant of the actual, and now of the intellect, as convenience prompts, even the works of our Philostratus are an example of our position. It is no longer poetry, but yet it cannot do without invention. Ariadne A beautiful, perhaps unique case, in which the consequences of an event are represented without injuring the unity of the work. Theseus departs. Ariadne continues quietly sleeping, and Bacchus comes in to repair that loss, of which she is not yet aware. What characteristic variety developed from a single fable? 
Theseus, with his swift-rowing Athenians, has attained the high sea on his homeward path. Their efforts, their course, their look, are all away from us. We see only their backs. It were vain to try to stop them. In sweetest contrast, Ariadne lies upon the mossy rock. She sleeps, nay, is sleep itself. The eye is drawn to the full breast and naked bust. And how exquisitely is this united by the neck and throat to the backward sinking head. The right shoulder, arm and side are also exposed to the spectator, while the left hand rests upon the robe to keep the wind from blowing it. How sweet the breath must come from that youthful mouth. Soon will the approaching god try if its flavour be of grapes or of apples. And he is not unworthy to do so, for the artist has represented him as adorned with love alone. His dress is a purple robe, and he wears a garland of roses. His whole air is of one drunk with love, calm in its fullness, sunk in admiration of beauty. The cunning, sagacious artist has put aside every attribute that would make Dionysus too recognisable. He has discarded, as out of place, the flowery garment, the soft doe skin, the thyrsus. Here is only the refined lover. His company also is treated in the same way. The bacchants do not clash their cymbals. The fauns refrain from their flutes. Pan himself moderates his leaps, so as not to wake the sleeper before the time. When she opens her eyes, she will rejoice in the reparation of her loss, will feel the charm of the god's presence before she becomes aware of the departure of her faithless lover. How happy wilt thou be, O maiden, object of such care, when thy friend leads thee over this bare-seeming rock to cultivated, planted wine-hills, where thou, amid the vine-covered alleys, surrounded with readiest service, shalt for the first time feel that love which shall never end, for thou shalt enjoy it in the all-present heaven, looking down from the stars upon us in eternal friendliness. End of section 29 Recording by Florence